way it will be into the future. Um, but that's a, that's a way off. And, you know, what role does hotel quarantine or any form of quarantine or self-isolation take? Welcome to Series 2 of the Future Health Podcast, a podcast on the way we work, the work we do, and how technology will influence the future of work in New South Wales Health in the healthcare industry. We have an incredible lineup of guests this series, and we're looking forward to sharing it with you soon. Feel free to like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Our guest today is Ms. Susan Pierce, Deputy Secretary of the Patient Experience System Performance Division of New South Wales Health. Susan has been the Chief Controller the State Health Emergency Operations Centre, responsible for the COVID response in New South Wales. Susan is passionate about the human experience in healthcare, and I'm looking forward to discussing with her on how we can maintain it moving into the future. My next guest is Ms. Susan Pierce, the controller of the SHIOC, the State Health Emergency Operations Command Center, also the Deputy Secretary of Patient Experience System Performance Unit, and the most re- recent challenge of the controller for the vaccine distribution in New South Wales as well. Uh, welcome, Susan, and thanks for making time today in your busy schedule, nonetheless, to come and talk to us about what the future of work, uh, the workforce, and the worker looks like. I'm sure you've thought about these themes long in the past and then I've had to re-chalk a lot of that over the last year and it'd be great to just start off and discuss how you see this playing out in the next couple of years and how what are the biggest challenges you see for the workforce and how the future of work is going to look like. Well that's a big question. Um, Look obviously you do think about these things and like a lot of people and no doubt the people that you've been talking to, uh, I've been working in health in New South Wales since I left school, you know, when you include the training. So quite a few years, over 30. Uh, and in that time some things have changed a lot and some things haven't changed at all, to be honest. Uh, so when you think about it, I think it's hard not to think about what's happened over the last 15 or 16 months in that context because what we've seen in that time is that we've had to reinvent ourselves over and over and over again. And as a workforce in health, one of the things that has become really obvious to me is that we're really capable of doing that in a much speedier way than we've ever thought possible. So usually change takes many, many years but what's happened in this period is that the change that's been forced upon us has meant that we've needed to do that much more quickly. So when we first started and as the um, controller of the SHEOC, one of the things that I thought I would be doing most of all was managing demand on our health system, emergency department attendances, uh, ICU uh, capacity and the like, and we're prepared for that. Um, so in the event that that ever even now still occurred, we we have all of that planning and preparation in place. But in actual fact, what I've ended up doing with my team uh, and the, his, the health system more broadly um, is managing hotel quarantine from a health perspective, um, managing an exempt, exemptions unit 
associated with, um, for example, the international arrivals, but also when we had a border closure period with Victoria for some months last year, uh, standing up COVID testing clinics in a matter of hours and all of the things that that entails. Uh, and, you know, now with obviously with the vaccine rollout from a health system perspective, it's sort of that logistics and planning exercise. So, it's brought home all the more what the health system is capable of doing and then what do we use within that um, that helps us to deliver those results. So I think that's, you know, that's been a really interesting experience and, it, and it, it's, as I said, it's hard not to think about the, sh- the future of health um, with those lenses on. And, yeah, you raised that important point around having to meet a new challenge and having to do it so rapidly whilst we might not face a pandemic, hopefully not for the <laughs> foreseeable future once we control this one, the need to adapt to what the population needs um, and having to do it at a rapid and agile speed rather than having to wait for decades for the customer to change and us to change with them is, is going to be a challenge. How do you see... I know you were very passionate about patient experiences and the way the systems approaches it. How do you see the future engagement and design of health in New South Wales being derived from those patient experiences? Uh, well, again, uh, I think, you know, if you take the last 15 or so months as an example, what we've learned about our uh, patients and, and carers and the community in general is that they're actually much more open to other models of healthcare. And so it's us clinicians who hold a view about how things should be done that aren't always entirely what where the community expectations are or what people are comfortable with. And and so during the peak months of COVID, you know, when we had over 200 cases a day back in late March um, and April last year, the role of telehealth and um, video conferencing and virtual healthcare had to be taken up through necessity. So we saw an increase in those mediums, you know, hundreds and hundreds of percent increase in in what we would normally do. And the feedback from that uh, was quite positive, actually, in terms of how people experience that care. Now, I think we need to be really clear. We're not suggesting for a moment that face-to-face contact with people, particularly undifferentiated patients, is not completely necessary. It will always be necessary. But there is an element of the work that we do that that certainly could be met uh, much more effectively, I think, in those in those ways. And so, you know, when you think about I, I think back, if I go back all the way back to when I first started working as a nurse um, in Broken Hill, which is actually 30 years ago this year, um, I would have given anything to have had the ability to reach out to somebody in a, in a larger centre um, with greater expertise to seek advice and guidance about the management of some of the people that we had to look after. So in a place like that, I was there for 10 years, um, you know, you're confronted with all manner of things, but you don't have layers and layers of medical staff and you don't have all of the things um, that sort of large metropolitan hospitals have. And you, you can't. I mean, it, it's just not how, you know, the system um, the system can't support 
that because of the volume of patients and, you know, clinical expertise and all of those things. So it would have been wonderful. Now those things are available now to people and, you know, to my way of thinking, obviously it's been a while since I've worked out there, but, you know, that that must be such a comfort to the staff to know that they can pick up a phone or get onto a video conference and speak to someone with specialist skills um, given the many and varied things that you encounter. So a little bit of it is, you know, what we've experienced now and if you if you overlay that on our system, you can see the obvious advantages to it. In terms of patient experience, I think what it means though is we've got to we've got to be able to educate and train our clinical staff and, and support staff for that matter in a somewhat different way. Um, you know, what does the system of the future look like? It certainly won't all be done by telehealth or video conferencing. Again, you know, no one's suggesting that, but it does have a role to play. It has a valuable role to play. And so what does it mean for the experience of someone and being mindful about that experience if you're not sitting beside them, for example? Um, and in some cases, and talking to a, a, a doctor from uh, Central Western New South Wales recently, you know, for example, having to deliver perhaps bad news or, or something like that, what does that mean if you had to do that over a video versus being with someone in real life, uh, and and you know the research will tell you that when you know there's there's lots of studies that have been done if if you know where they they did a control test with a the medical team standing at the end of the bed um, delivering a message to a patient and uh, versus someone sitting right beside the patient and and being able to reach out and touch them and and so on, and the patient's view of that was that the the people who sat beside them spent a much longer period of time with them mm. than when they're at the end of the bed. Now they'd spend exactly the same period of time, but it's that perception. Yeah. And and so, you know, they're all the things that we've got to think about, I think, into the future, not just in our day-to-day work when we're actually physically present with people, but what does that mean when we're potentially not? Yeah, and you, you've picked some great themes there, the whole concept of specialist outreach and people having to wait for months on end to for someone to get on a plane and visit a remote site to be seen and the fact that the people they actually connect with are those local nurses and the multiple workers in in that area who they connect with on daily basis and having that connection and like you highlighted the bedside um, interaction is what matters and how can we add value to that rather than try to replace or get everyone everywhere which is not potentially going to be possible it's i've had the pleasure of working with you over the past few years and also listening to all the things you've been up to one of the key challenges we faced during covid and is around the workplace and the way the workplace is designed i know a lot of those lessons you've had are from hotel quarantine as well but those design aspects how do you see or some of your experiences recently see how do you see the change and including virtual care, see the changes in our healthcare infrastructure of the future? Uh, well, look, you know, it's a broad question. Um, the the healthcare structure of the future, I think, will in the main continue on as it is. Um, you know, the, the, the role that each of the disciplines play is pretty clear. Um, but I think that the team, the, the role of the team has been, again, 
really re-emphasised during this period and the contribution that people have in that team. Um, so, you know, we've talked a lot for many years and even when I was the, uh, the Chief Nursing and Midwifery Officer, so going back a number of years now, about what happens in the preparation space for beginning practitioners and how they learn about what their what their counterparts do when they actually emerge into the workplace. I don't think we've got that right still. Um, I think that people do their, you know, their preparation and, and their education and, and they enter a workforce and they understand their own realm relatively well, but they really probably still don't understand all of the other aspects of how that all comes and fits together. And, you know, there really is nothing more important than working as a team. Now that can be, you know, intradiscipline and inter, and I and I think that they, they're the aspects at a human level that I'd really like to see improved over time. It's not one discipline being, you know, trying to take the place for another um, and, I, and I don't think that anybody actually really wants to do that. Uh, that misinterpretation's existed for a long time. Um, but do, people do have something to contribute and I think it would be far better viewed through the lens of, of the team. Um, we've had to, again, because of COVID, become team members with other agencies outside of health that we've never worked with in the same way that we do now. So... You know, the New South Wales Police, for example, are our absolute key partner in many things associated with COVID, but hotel quarantine is one of those. And I think over the last 12 months or more now, um, we've really learned a lot about each other and what they bring and what we bring and having some respect for that. And probably prior to that time, in the absence of having that day-to-day working together and really understanding, it's not about being disrespectful, but we just didn't understand each other. And so people approach that with a degree of trepidation. And so that, I would like to think, by and large, is gone. And that hasn't happened by itself. It's happened because the you know, the the CECON, um, the Deputy Commissioner Gary Warboys uh, and myself have been very clear with everyone working with us and for us that he and I are completely, you know, at one in terms of our position and if we're not, we'll discuss that and that's our expectation all the way down the line. And I guess there are things about that that I think we could better replicate in the health system and it would be nice to think that in the fullness of time and before I retire in not in in less than double digit years um that you know you'd you'd like to see that ship start to turn a little bit more yeah no it's interesting because i think a lot of our speakers have highlighted the role of teams um the the value a team can bring to patient outcomes versus a single person and that mutual respect for each other's roles and picking on the best skills of each of those people to deliver the care is really very important i know it's it sounds like I'm picking on the more sensitive issues for now. Another curveball question, but if you were to put yourself back 18 months and know that what's happened just now, what, what if anything, would you have done differently back then, like 24 months ago, to say, well, we could do this much better prepared? Yeah, it's a, it's a, t- it's a tough one because on a, on a personal level, 
I think that, um, you know, the resilience factor, I think people are are struggling a bit at the moment. Um, You know, I probably shouldn't overlay how I'm feeling on the rest of the health system, but, you know, it's been tough. And, again, you can't pretend that that's not the case. It is. It's not. And it's not just for us. It's for the whole community because no matter who you are or where you are, um, this this thing has touched you in some way. And if when it's affecting you professionally as well, um, you know, it's sort of like you just can't get away from it. Um, so I think that the resilience factor is a critical thing and we, you know, you go into something like this, um, even though we call it the State Health Emergency Operations Centre, it's really, it's it's not really an emergency operations centre anymore. This is the work we do now. This is business as usual almost and it will be for the foreseeable future. And so when you're working on an emergency operations footing, it's sort of in your mind you think, oh, you know, um, I mean, look, the winter of 2017 is another good, it's a good example. Um, you know, three months solid of really that was hard, you know, day and night you know, hard, hard, hard work for everyone. But it was three months, you know, give or take a few weeks on either side and it was done. This is not that. And so you can you can sustain that sort of work for that sort of period but now, you know, you're stretching into a 15, 16-month, you know, 18-month, two-year period. Um, so the thing that I would have done differently as a leader is to think about how you're going to give people reprieve from it and how they could get access to some time off. Um, again, if I look at the police, I think they have a their structures lend themselves better to that because they're not they don't appear to be as person dependent. Their their role, so they you know swap out roles, and I think that's been a really interesting thing to view from from where we sit. Um, in terms of our other structures, though, I think that, look, those first few weeks and probably, you know, six weeks maybe, it's hard to remember, were challenging because we were trying to work out, you know, who was doing what, we've got a pandemic plan, what does that look like, what does it mean in this context? Really what it means is that the people who do the things that they do in normal circumstances do that in the pandemic and that's essentially what we've done. So whilst all of the people here do something around COVID, that's why you see Kerry, you know, with on the as the public health face and the face of it really, you know, my team and myself doing the operational work, which is what we do in normal circumstances, and then obviously the other DEPSECs with their various roles, you know, the clinical leadership that Nigel's um, and his team have performed and particularly in regard to the clinical council, the PPE, communities of practice, you know, fill with the workforce. Um, and, and so they're doing what they do and that and that's been a key to our success. But I think when you look at it in the context of looking across the country, we got ourselves organised pretty quickly. It didn't feel like it at the time. But I think once we found, you know, we 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 created the SHEOC, the FIOC was there, we added the other, you know, the, the other elements to it that I've just mentioned and that sort of came together reasonably quickly. And I, I'm, I'm pretty happy, you know, on reflection with that could there could have been some things done better it's always back to the communication uh but you know ultimately that that came together fairly well and the fact that new south wales health is a very joined up health system with our district structure 
the ministry as a system manager and the secretary obviously in terms of, you know, say there was the overall incident controller um, has meant that we've been able to pull all of that together and work as one and I think that's been something that we should be pretty happy with, I think. I think it's the key to our success. Yeah, and, yeah. and which brings me to the next question. What from these things do you see remaining into the future? The, like the community clinics and the testings and moving them away from the acute site so you're not mixing things or yeah, you think there I, are some I, things which you would keep into the near future? I, I think it, it it's it's there's going to become a point where COVID does become part of our lives and it will be in a community. And I think switching that message mm -hmm is pretty challenging because obviously we're very focused on cases and, and you know, if there's a case, there's a lot of scrutiny around that case. But at a point in time, um, you know, obviously with the vaccine rollout and, and, you know, how that takes shape, particularly toward the end of the year when a lot more people will be vaccinated and we open up again at some point in the future, which will be determined by governments, um, you know, that, that will mean that COVID is here and sending people to testing clinics won't be the way we manage it anymore. Um, you know, as, as Kerry has pointed out, you don't ask people to come in and get a test for a, a, a runny nose now. Um, you know, it, it it is not the way it will be into the future. Um, but that's a, that's a way off. And, you know, what role does hotel quarantine or any form of quarantine or self-isolation take? Um, what does the clinic structure look like? Um, it, it, it's all there to be determined, but it, it will be different. That's the one thing we know. Susan, you highlighted that, you know, through the before the pandemic and your focus on patient experience and through the pandemic, through the need of this pandemic, we developed so many models of care, which now we know the patients want. And you just said it got expedited. How do you see this playing out in the future? Well, I think, I mean, the key ingredient always is about listening to our patients. And so I've often thought about the fact that, you know, the whole world has shifted um, to the point now where, much to my displeasure, I don't really even need to carry a purse anymore. I pay for everything with my phone, you know, and that's happened really fast in a way, like it, it, you know, that, that sort of technology, that speed. And so for us in health, I think, yes, our technology's moved. Um, we've got a lot of, you know, incredible equipment, you know, the, the most high-end amazing things that are capable of being doing, we do. On a day-to-day -day basis though, what does people's experience with health look like when you think about the technology that the rest of the world is moving on with? And that's the space I think we've really got to think about without dehumanising it, but we just can't keep doing what we've always done in with with the expectation on the public health system to always be there and we should and people have a right to have high expectations of it, but it also has to move with the times. So, you know, there, there are opportunities um, there. And as you know, I mean, I speak as someone who, you know, I, I had open heart surgery almost 20 years ago Um obviously have had regular follow-up over the years because of that. Now, you know, do I need to go, my cardiologist may not appreciate me saying this, but, you know, do I actually need to go and troop in and see him once a year? Is there another way of doing it? What role do wearables play? You know, why couldn't I be sitting somewhere, 
you know, and and have that consultation because you know, I'm well, I think. Um, so, you know, there are so many things. So I'm not just talking about it as a health system, you know, manager. I'm talking about it as a person who's experienced pretty um, significant health issue. And I think that there are opportunities there. Um, but, you know, the, the patient experience work that we've done is so very important to me. And, and in fact, it, it as, as you also know, it was because of that experience that I had as a, per, you know, as a young, younger, much younger woman um, and also my, um, you know, colleague and, and friend, um, you know, Brian McCorn and some of the experiences that he had um, when his wife was, um, you know, battling um, cancer and, we joined together to make small acts of kindness, which is now, um, I think it'll be eight years old at the end of this year. Now that film, I'm going out to a thing this week uh, to talk to a group, clinical group, and we'll be playing it. It stood the test of time because the reality of it is, is that kindness and compassion, are, you know, have never been not a thing. Uh, I'd like to think that we did what we said we were going to do and we sparked a bit of a, a conversation around that and, and we've continued on with that over the years. And given what society has been through and what it continues to go through, um, even the harrowing footage that you're seeing on your television every night, even now, there has just never been a time that's more important than now to be kind and compassionate to people. And, and so... From that perspective, the work that the team have done with elevating the human experience is, is really seeking to bring that to life in a more structured way. Um, and I'm, I'm really happy and proud of that because I think it's, you know, we did the film and it was sort of it went out there and it still gets used and that's great but it's sort of like then what? And what we needed to do was to have without being a dictatorship about you know everyone must be kind or whatever form that should take it's really about this is the principle here you know we measure how long it takes someone to get from an ambulance stretcher to an ED bed to the ward to home how long it takes people to have their surgery we measure everything but for me what is as important as important and this is the message we've put out to our system and they've responded to it incredibly well is that how people feel about the care that they receive no matter how they receive it um, is every bit as important as anything else we measure and so you know it it really is that's why I said at the start there are some things about our health system that have changed a lot in the last 30 years there are some things that haven't changed at all uh, and the things that I remember the most about it as most people do are the things that either, you know, have touched you personally and that can be positive or negative. And so, you know, the things where someone might have said something to you that's really wounded you, those things stay with you. Uh, and so I think that um, not, you know, not to be bitter and twisted or to dwell on them, but, you know, you remember it because it hit you. And, and so it, on the other side of that equation, I guess what we want is for people to have those, you know, positive feelings and think, um, you know, this is a good place to be. I'm valued here. The work I do is meaningful and I'm not Pollyanna. I know it's hard um, and it's not always like that, but we can change it. Yeah. No, it's very important because as clinicians, we both know that the only times we get it right 
most of the time yeah. even more than most of the time you know um i would say 999 or even 99000 out of 10000 times we get things right but it's only the one time that we collect data for now is when we do have an event or an adverse event and so it's almost like when you get some news it's always bad news about the way you work but bringing those patient experiences through and actually making clinicians feel valued completes that circle of finding purpose in your work as well and i think um that for me is probably going to be steady even now or into the future and that's not going to change even if it robots are doing it or someone behind the robot who is going to have to connect with those people so susan you are lighted um the things we're seeing internationally and you know this crisis has brought out the best and worst in across the world and also shown the resilience of the healthcare communities and like you said like we've got this but it's also exposed a lot of those fragile fragileness and some key weaknesses in our system around you know lack of public health investment not in our country but internationally you've seen that suffer and then create problems how do you see this pandemic having reshaped that future for us yeah look i think the the question is what can we hold on to from this experience where we've learned positive things about what we can do that that really for me is the key to this so we've learned stuff about what we can do we've discussed um we've actually learned that health is not an island and we need to we do need other partners at times to help us uh to do things and we should be more open to that uh so again you know as i say there are so many agencies that we work with now in such a different way than we did before it is incredible uh and you know if i went back 18 months i would not have foreseen that uh in the way that it has shaped up so we've got to hang on to those things and think about you know even if you overlaid that on um say at a community level and in particularly in say rural communities then what does that sort of whole of government approach look like to particular issues uh, or or multi agency or other partners and we do we do do that of course but you know we could do it better uh and i think that, so there there are those things the the thing we've got to be careful of is not just reverting to type because we're humans we like to do what we've always done because we're comfortable in that zone and so you know you the, the risk we run is that when this thing is ever you know different and over in in the way that it, we're experiencing it still now is what does that look like and how do we hang on to the things without just going right back to where we were before it started i think that's the challenge that sits in front of us and and the state the community of our state and and the and the country and the world really has looked to its health systems to lead them through and you can see how that's played out um i think the thing for us to be really proud of is that australia has really listened to its um health advice and balanced that advice with the broader needs of the community i think really well and and you can see in countries where that has not been the case with i won't list them but you mm. know they're pretty obvious 
And then you see what happens as a result of that. And so it's really quite fascinating when you think about it at a health policy level, what does that mean? And recently, or some months ago, I was talking to a group who were doing, uh, you know, poly- health policy um, education. And, you know, one of my comments to them was that, you know, when you're in that environment, you have got to be brave and you have to be um, you have to be honest with your advice and not tailor that advice to to suit a particular narrative. And I think that we uh, have exemplified that um, throughout this period and, and that we should continue to. Not always right. Um, people will and should have and are entitled to have a different point of view, but you know, it, it's really about doing what you know is the right thing to do or what you believe is the right thing to do and hopefully the rest will follow. Thank you so much, uh, Susan, for sharing your views today and good luck with your journey, Ed, and hopefully <laughs> you take us to that space quicker than we all expect I to be there. So. Thank you I so hope much. so. Thanks, Emma. So that's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for joining me on the show. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to like, share, and subscribe on whatever platform you are on right now. Thank you.